always got utter belief in it. And somehow she found the acceleration. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. We didn't have any world records this past weekend to break down, but we did have some big time action on the roads and in cross country. Japan has selected the first four members of its Olympic team after an intense marathon grand championship in Tokyo. Yuki Kauchi was heavily involved. It was epic. We will talk about that race. And then there was more rain in Madison, Wisconsin. Parker Valby taking down Caitlin Tui at the Nuttycomb Invitational where Northern Arizona swept the team titles and the Oregon men were totally invisible. We'll break that down. And we will be joined at the end of the show by Stephen Lane, author of the new book, Long Run to Glory, about the 1984 Women's Olympic Marathon a race that Stephen makes the case for as the greatest marathon in Olympic history. So we'll talk to him about the race, about Joan Benoit's victory, how that whole thing came together. This is Jonathan Gold. I am joined by my fearless co-hosts, Robert Johnson and Weldon Johnson. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Weldon, right now, his Texas Rangers are only six wins away from a World Series title. I can tell he's growing more excited and nervous with every day. How are you right now, Weldon? I'm doing great, John, but I don't know if I can take it anymore. We're only halfway home. And it's just getting more and more nerve-wracking. There's nothing better than Major League Baseball playoffs if you have a team that you're invested in. I'm getting more and more pumped every game, and I have to do this six more times. At least. I mean, you're not gonna, if you're going to sweep the playoffs six more times, it's probably going to be more than that. I mean, I'm looking at the schedule here, Weldon. Game seven of the World Series is November 4th. That's the night before the New York City Marathon. So you might be a little distracted for our New York City Marathon coverage if it comes to that. Ooh, night before? We should have a let's run meetup, but I, I, I'm not sure I could watch game seven of the World Series with ton of let's run people but of course i could i love the let's run people you guys are the best and then we got robert in maryland who is sporting his orioles gear today i tried to give him a compliment i think he looks great in this zip up pullover he's got halloween colors but then he gave me the finger so are you in a good mood bad mood robert i wouldn't say good mood i was counting on the sixteen thousand dollars i was going to be getting and free money when my Orioles and Ravens won the Super Bowl. Now I'm going to have to pull my son out of private school. I don't know how I'm going to tell him tomorrow. But other than that, everything's great, John. How are you? Not bad. I'm sporting my own England kit here. Big European Championship qualifier, England versus Italy this afternoon. I need to get John and Weldon a real mic flag. Like mine says, let's run. Then it says Rojo on the side. I was trying to think, John, like, what do you want me to put on the side? I was originally going to put Brighton, but then I thought that would be a copyright violation. I could put like an American flag on one side and a U.S. flag on the other. Do you have a nickname? American or? on both, you mean? that You mean a U.K. flag on one and the American flag yeah. on the other one? I, I think JG would be fine, but it's funny. We, we look at our podcasting setup. Robert's got the professional mic that looks really cool, but 
basically everything else about his setup is hit or miss on a weekly basis. Weldon has a very good looking camera. I guess I should, this, Weldon's pretty professional all around. And then there's me who I, I've always got everything set up, but my lighting is terrible and I can never f- seem to figure it out. Even if I've got like those special podcasting lights, I put the halo light in front of me. Sometimes it does almost nothing. So, and I would, I'm pretty pale. I feel like I should be getting, it shouldn't be that hard for me to show up in a camera shot, but somehow it is. I don't know if I live in a vortex or something, but anyway, that, you guys don't care about this behind the scenes stuff. You guys care about running. So let's talk about that. Nutty comb, Robert and I, if you missed it, we broke down the Nutty comb invitational on Friday. We did a live post-race reaction show. Quite fun. If I do say so myself, I think we did a pretty good job. That's why you got to be a member of the supporters club. People, if you want our immediate takes, we pump that thing out a weekly bonus podcast on Friday, the Friday 15 let's run.com slash subscribe to join that. As we said in the intro, Parker Valby over Caitlin Tui. That was the big showdown that we didn't even realize we were getting until maybe day or two before it was awesome in the rain, in the mud, in Madison, the, Florida athlete gets the win. Weldon, I don't know if you watched this race. You weren't part of our post-race show. So I always like doing this. For the person who wasn't there, who wasn't paying attention, like what struck you when you see the results? What did you care about? What questions do you have for us? Like, what are you thinking about, about Nutty Come? I did not watch it. And like you guys, I... I don't think I knew until after the race that Parker Valb and Caitlin Tui were actually racing. Well, that was fake news. John said we didn't know until a day or two before. We didn't know until they were on the start line. I mean, I was texting John to text the NC State coach to see if Tui was running the day before. Former Let's Run intern Carl Winter was running the course the day before, and he said that he saw Caitlin Tui and that he expected her to run. So that was kind of the earliest we knew. Well, this is great. I'm glad that college runners are emulating the pros. A major knock on our sport at the pro level is we never know who's racing until like the day before a race. I'm glad the college runners are now trying to emulate the pros and keep that going. But no, big picture, it's better for the sport that Parker Valby beat Caitlin Tui. Now everyone's going to be very excited about NCAA cross country. I mean, we love NCAA cross country. People will be very excited no matter what. But now there's even more doubt that Caitlin Tui might win this thing, defend her title. Great. That is great. That's what we need. Volby and Tui are two huge American stars. It's very rare to have like two Americans as the favorites. And now there's some doubt on who's even more doubt, maybe, on who's going to win. That's picture number one. Number two kind of surprised the NAU women are good. That's sort of a new development in my head. But Mike Smith's an amazing coach. Flagstaff's a great place to train. Sounds like they brought in a couple transfers. Couple? Robert doesn't like the fact that recruiting is part of the job. Well, nowadays, especially with the ability to transfer and be eligible right away, and uh, well, if any school's probably not doing NIL money, it's NAU. But... Well, I'm just, I'm trying to think in my head, what is the perfect, what is the cross country team that Robert wants to see win every year? It's probably like, 
an older coach, but he's not like a legend, so he doesn't get too much credit. Uh, who has a team of athletes who are all no older than 23 from the United States. And that way that is that the one that you can't throw up any flags and you'll say, I fully endorse this team or Robert, like in your mind, what's the platonic ideal of an NCAA cross country program uh, that wins NCAAs? I just don't like the fact that more girls in NAU's top seven this year ran for New Mexico than ran for NAU last year. Three girls from the team are, were New Mexico runners last year. Two were NAU runners last year. So it, uh, I don't know. It just it brings back PTSD for me because obviously when I'm in the Ivy League and I'm at the Cornell, I'm not going to be getting the same recruits as Princeton and Harvard. And then people are like, why aren't you winning? Put John Wooden, Wooden I mean, well, first of all, how, how did John Wooden all those championships? They paid their players, even the great John Wooden. So it's just a corrupt world. It, it reminds me of corrupt. And I'm not saying any of is corrupt. What they're doing is fine. Mike Smith is an amazing coach. But I, I, my default is to be contrarian. And my default is to root for the underdog. So when any of you was the crappy up, was, was the little upstart team, and Ron Mann was there, and Weldon was helping put five stuff on the map. We were NAU guys, but now that they're the powerhouse, we are for somebody else. The NAU women haven't been a powerhouse. NAU has been lagging behind the men for the whole time that Mike Smith was there. And NC state gets number one recruiting. Like they have so much talent and so many of the top high school recruits. Caitlin Tui was one of the biggest us high school recruits ever. Kelsey Camille was a huge recruit. Like, I don't know. Between NC State and NAU, I would argue NAU is the underdog. Or has been until this point. And I got a question for you guys. Robert says Cornell couldn't win because he didn't get good recruits, yet the track team won all these Ivy League titles in a row. So how did the sprint and field events coach overcome the recruiting advantage that Harvard and Princeton had? Amazingly that he was able to win, John, and not just complain. You guys can't see it, but Robert is looking puzzled right now as if this thought had never occurred to him in the past. Part of it is a numbers game. When he's getting 10 to 12 recruits a year and Yale's getting five, he's got more recruits than other schools. When Columbia is doing all 15 of the recruits on distance, they have a shot to win. So the solution to this is simple. You don't get to pick your college. It's a draft. All 200 NCAA schools, based on the order of finish, go. So, like, next year, I'm afraid top recruit in the country is probably going to go to some, like, MEAC school. They're going to be going to... Yeah, I'm sorry. You're going to Nichols State, and uh, you're going to like it. Look, big picture-wise, in terms of this meet, I just put this up in the week that was, our written version of Weekly Recap. The fact that Parker Valby won this race in a course record is remarkable. It was very windy, very, very rainy. And I've just put this table up. The first place man, the 50th place man, the 100th place man, first the 50th place woman and the 100th place woman all ran significantly slower than they did the year before. 13 seconds, 20 seconds, 18 seconds, 10 seconds, 9 seconds. Yet, not only did Valby run, win, running 27 seconds faster than what Tui ran from the year before. She also set a course record. To do that in those conditions is amazing. But I said, if I'm Caitlin Tui, she should not be feeling bad about this. 
She had a longer track season than Volby. She's probably less into her training. What was Volby doing last year? She was just destroying the regular season, and she got beat at the end of the season. Tui ran significantly faster than she did last year and on the same course in worse conditions. And she also beat her teammate, Kelsey Camille. I mean, Kelsey Camille is third at NCAAs and Nuttycomb. At NCAAs, Caitlin only beat her by 9.4 seconds. This week, she beat her by 23.4 seconds. So this could just, you know, be phenomenal performance by Volby. But we'll see what happens in, what, five weeks? Wait, Kelsey Camille was third at NCAA last year in cross? Yeah. Wow. If I already had a big one-two bias, that's amazing. My apologies, Kelsey. Like, it's crazy how these two, Valby and Tui, have gotten a lion's share of attention. I mean, maybe rightfully so, but wow. To the victor go the spoils. What she's Scotty Pippen of this team. You, you saw that in my article. I mean, Kelsey Camille would be the number one runner on almost any other team in America. But And she was the number one runner in 2021 when they won. I believe that's correct. That I think she was the top athlete. So it's just the fact that she's on the same team as Caitlin Tui, who's won a bunch of NCAA individual titles. That's why she doesn't get as much attention. But yeah, she's one of the best runners in the NCAA. But that was great perspective from Robert because listening, I, I could hear it was a dominant victory, but I'm like, hey, it's early in the season. Volby ran fast early in the season last year. Tui was there when it mattered most. Is this going to be a repeat? And you just gave me some data saying, no, Volby has raised her game a level this year. So... Right, because I was kind of thinking that some of this, the margin of victory, the fact that Tui ran faster than last year might not mean anything because Tui didn't beat Camille by that much last year. But she didn't beat Camille by that much in NCAAs. And the fact that the gap between Camille and Bobby was so big is significant. Yeah, it's definitely more interesting for the sport with Valby beating Tui, but I'll say this. Nothing's a given at NCAA Cross. Even if both of these women came in undefeated, to NCAA cross country, you never know. Edward Cheserek won his first three appearances at NCAAs and only got third as a senior. Like Jenny Simpson, one of the biggest favorites we've ever seen at NCAA cross, finished, I think, 163rd. You just never know. So we're painting this as Tui versus Valby. I expect they'll go 1-2 in some order in Virginia next month, but... You never know that this is a it's a wild race. You never know what the conditions are going to be. Though Valby did just prove she can run in the mud. I'm super excited for it, and it's great that we have a backstory that they've been running against each other for a while. Not that many times head to head, honestly, because uh, Tui didn't race against Valby in NCAA outdoors, and Valby didn't run NCAA indoors. So I think this was actually their first meeting since NCAA cross last year. But yeah, it's good to see both women running well. And I'm excited to follow them the rest of this season and then as professionals, because I'm sure they're going to be among the best in the country for the next decade. The more I think about it, this loss is great for Tui. When she was debating coming back, I'm a big fan of being in college. She's happy. But again, not to 
act like my experience at Cornell is the same as what's going on in NC State. But we were winning every year in, in track, and like it, it became like a burden. Like you'd win, it was like a relief. It wasn't enjoyable. Like all you could do is screw up. Like everything was a disappointment. If you won, you were expected to win. If you don't, but this takes a little bit of that. Now, now maybe she can be the hunted. I mean, she can be hunting instead of the hunted. She's a little bit of the underdog now. And at least, at least she can create that in her own mind. I know everybody. What what is one of my favorite sayings about the world? Everybody wants to be a victim in the real world. Everybody, don't tell me it's not true. Me as oh, a I white thought, man, I, I just, I just thought you were going to say everybody wants to be an underdog because that's same thing. It's the same. It's the same con. It's the same concept. It's the same concept. Oh, they were disrespecting me. They were no one believed in me. Who, who was it early this year? Like no one believed in me. We're like, it's like. I think Grant Holloway said, like, after he won Worlds, like, oh, yeah, this is for the doubters. I'm like, dude, you're the second fastest man ever. You'd won the last two world titles. I don't think anyone was doubting you, but people, I mean, Michael Jordan, he invented doubters. When people, like, if someone didn't say hello to him at a restaurant, he'd disrespect them. He'd say they disrespected him. If they came up and said hello to him during the meal, he'd say that was disrespecting him. I mean, the best sometimes they go to invent the haters. So, Tui, I don't think Tui's saying, oh, I need haters, but you know, most people seem to love Caitlin Tui. Uh, but yeah, she's now it's like, okay, this is really cool. But I think she's she cares about the team more than individually. She's already won individually. And then granted, she's already won with the team twice. But that's really, I think, what she's going to be more excited about is getting the team titled a three-peat. All right, men's race. I mean, I got, well, I guess the other thing, we talked about this on the Friday 15, but NC State was down a couple women. You know, NAU won at 52-95, but NC State was missing Amara Sinisma, who was top 10 last year at NCAA Cross. They were missing, and Sam Bush, who was 15th, but DNF'd. And the question really is, can those two women who were kind of banged up over the summer, can they get back to their best by NCAAs? If so, it should be a great duel, and you could even maybe say NC State should be favored. If not, I mean, NAU, 52 points at this meet, which had 22 of the top 30 teams in the country. That's a really, really strong showing. So I'm hoping NCAA, NC State is whole by NCAAs, and we can actually see this clash of the Titans. Now, on the men's side, Weldon, Graham Blanks of Harvard gets the victory. So it's Hep's pride, but at the same time, it's Harvard, which is Yale's eternal rival. So... Are you excited by this result? Are you wondering why can't Yale get these kind of guys? How do you feel about this? Well, John, I know a professional like yourself isn't a fan, but personally, like Rojo, I'm a huge Graham Blanks fan. Don't worry, Yale, I've got your back. Make a good run for Yale at the pre-national meet. Keep it going, boys. But one, I'm an ex-Ivy leaguer. Never made the NCAAs, but fan of the runners excelling, showing it can be done. But also, Robert and I have the personal connection to Graham Blanks. One of our parents' good friend's nephew is Mr. Graham Blanks. Rojo has been to dinner with one NCAA runner in the last year. That is Graham Blanks. Rojo told Graham Blanks, you will not be on the podcast until you win NCAAs. NCAA cross is the hardest one to win. So I didn't see this coming, but the kid is a phenomenal runner. And I remember thinking, like, he got second last year at NCAAs in the 5K, right? Yep. And after not doing too well in the 10K. And 
even if I think of my own running career, right? Like I never made NCAs, but I got fourth in the country at USA's, you know, as a, I use the term professionally loosely. And I'm like, wait, this kid is so good. So much of a better runner than me. He just needs to start thinking about trying to win these races somehow. Like it's in his wheelhouse. And obviously once the kid's getting second, he's probably thinking that, but I'm like, like, what's the difference in between the second kid, the sixth kid, the like, you got to somehow be in the equation to start winning these things. That's how good he is. So for him to win this one, it sounds like it came down to a kick. That's a big Achilles heel for him in the past. It sounds like he just blew everyone away the last 400. He did. Yeah. It was, it was he put the, more than the, two seconds on the field. It was impressive to beat that many guys by that much is really surprising for anyone. Yeah. And like, these, I would expect this one to come down to the lean at the line when there's that many guys together. So, I, I was excited to hear about it. Individually, I think it's interesting because it wasn't just the put two seconds on this field. This was a field consisting of most of the top contenders for the NCAA individual title. Nico Young, who was second at NCAAs last year, the top returner, he was second. Habtom Samuel, the Eritrean superstar freshman from New Mexico who's run 27-20 for 10K, he was third. Kai Robinson, NCAA 5K, 10K champion, was fourth. And Drew Bosley, who was third at NCAA Cross and won the Virginia Invitational this year, was eight. So this is pretty much all the best guys. And Blanks was clearly the best over the last 400. So Stamen went for him. Also a huge run by Rocky Hansen of Wake Forest, who's a true freshman. He was sixth right in the mix with some of these guys to come in and immediately be running with the best guys in the country in college is terrific. Now, I was talking to someone this week they told me that Rocky Hansen might actually be 20 years old. I don't have a date of birth for him, but they said that he might have been a year old in high school and now he's already... T- I don't know what his exact date of birth is. So, you know me, I do always kind of want to put, put these things in context. Either way, going from college, high school, not being the best recruit in his class, though he was a 358 miler, to stepping up against NCAA studs is really impressive. But if anyone knows actual Rocky Hansen's actual date of birth, I would be interested in knowing that information. But also, I got an email from Craig Longhurst, who is down at the Camel City meet in North Carolina. He helps put that on every year, the indoor meet. And he was said he was impressed by Blanks because you know he wasn't a huge name recruit coming out of high school. And I looked it up his PIs. It is a little hard to tell because he was a senior in the COVID year. So he graduated in the spring of 2020. His PBs were 415 and 904, 904 for two miles, but he barely raced as a senior. And then, you know, he, he takes this gap year before he goes to Harvard where he runs 1327 at the end of that. But it's a long way from 904 to 1327. So I just thought it was, it's kind of cool. You know, maybe he, this guy would have been an 840 something guy if he ran his senior year of high school but someone to make that he was he wasn't like a nico young or a uh rocky hansen type in high school based on the performances he ran at least so it's kind of cool to see him at the very be- at the very top of the ncaa in this meet well john he ran 13 27 before he stepped foot on the harvard campus like he was training at home doing that i would love to know no it was not what was he doing it, he went to flagstaff so he, he moved to altitude and had a huge breakthrough. Sound familiar? 
Sounds familiar to me. Weldon embarrassed himself. He's like, this guy's got to get the... It sounds like when Weldon was in the weed at like Mount Sac one year, and I was talking to John Kellogg on the first cell phone I ever had. And I'm like, what should I tell him to do? And he's like, tell him to win the race. John's like, Weldon's like, this guy got second. He's got to start believing he can win. I'm like, no shit. Like, it's been clear to me talking to him at these meets for years. He's been trying to win. Even when I was like, really? You're thinking you should be winning? Like, you're going to get like eighth or fifth, you know, whatever. So good race for him. But if I'm going to, there's a number of reasons why I would not pick him as the NCAA favorite. One, Kai Robinson was racing. Does anyone remember what Kai Robinson was doing in track? Remember at Pac-12s last year, how he tore it up? Oh, wait, he didn't win that race. The Stanford guys were training through it, running 100 miles a week, and then they destroyed everybody at nationals. So Robinson was running track races as late as July 22nd, I think. So he's probably just getting back into it. I'm assuming he's on the upswing. And John and I both had the same thought about this guy from New Mexico who's run 2720 and like 1313. Like, do how used to him is he used to running in soggy, wet conditions? I don't know how wet it is in Eritrea. So but great win for for Graham. We'll see what happens at NCAs. Okay, the other thing that stood out to me on the men's side, the Stanford men did horribly. Now it hurts not having what NCAA champion Charles Hicks back on the team this year. And they lost him, and then one of the guys who would have been that one of their top runners, Devin Hart, ended up doing grad school at Texas. So he was 17th in this race. So that, that's but, two big losses right there. But the thing that most interests me is the Young brothers. I guess Leo run, Young didn't run this one, but Lex Young did. 86th place. And I think that shows how difficult it can be as a freshman. And there's now a thread on Let's Run. I don't know if this is going to be the thread of the week or not, but why is Nico Young, Lex's brother, transitioned to NCAA competition so much easier than the other Newberry Park athletes? You guys discussed this a little bit in the podcast, but Nico Young, like first year at NCAAs, was third, I believe. That was in the spring, but Lex and Leo were pretty good, you know, really good 5K runners last year. Junior, you know, high school records, that sort of stuff, that level. And now they're 86 in this first big college meet they're going. One, to me, it just shows how tough the collegiate meets are. Like, if you're off, you're going to get buried in this thing. But I am interested in the concept of how, like, these Newberry Park guys who are training essentially as, for sure, college runners, semi-pros almost in high school, how some of them do so well at the next level and some don't right away. Scrolling this thread, though, now this angle is interesting, Robert, and Maybe it's a pot shot at us, but maybe this pot, maybe this, you guys would not be listening to this podcast right now if it wasn't for this. But here's this the twins, like all twins, rely on each other too much. Now, that wouldn't explain why, uh, why all the other Newberry Park guys don't immediately transition to the NSA level, but interesting angle. I haven't thought about a twin angle here, but I think identical twins, especially, do view the world a bit differently and I don't know, transition into well, they're at the same school adulthood a little bit differently. I mean, if anything, it just makes me more impressed by what Nico young did. He stepped in and got fourth at NCAA cross country as a true freshman. That's amazing. Granted, he had a little bit longer to prepare because that championship was in March as opposed to November, but 
I think maybe he deserves a little bit more credit here. Lex and Leo, we have seen... I thought they would step in right away and be good, but I think that was also colored by what I'd seen Nico Young do at NAU. So, I don't know. I, they've run two races in college, or Lex has. Leo didn't even run this one. So, I, I feel like I'm not going to make any massive judgments or crazy things on this. This is a, Sometimes it takes a while, especially adjusting to Stanford uh, with its academic demands. Now, we have seen Sean McGordy, Grant Fisher, they stepped in. They were pretty good for Stanford right away. But every run is different. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not writing them off or anything. It's just kind of interesting. Like Lex Young ran 13.34 on the track over the summer. High school record. And he's, you know, he's only 86th in this race. But again, 13.34 in the NCAA. A lot of kids can run that. So he's clearly, he's got a bigger ceiling but you need to, you do need to keep improving to compete at that level. Help me out here. Why are we expecting guys that were 11th and 35 in the high school nationals to be superstars in college cross country as freshmen? I don't think 80th in this result result was bad for him. And for the Solomon brothers, the answer is simple: they're more mid D guys than they are long distance guys. Yeah, I mean, Colin was coming along. He made it to Blaze in the 1500 last year. He had a good spring. It just took him a little while to figure things out. But he didn't run this race. And I wonder, is he injured or is he sick or something? It's kind of interesting to me. Neither of the Salmon brothers ran for NAU at Wisconsin. Not even in the B race. I mean, we're, we're not having discussion on why the Washington Milers all suck at cross country. Because nobody cares if they go to cross country. I, I, by the way, I just want to though, say Luke Hauser, Luke Hauser, NCAA mile champion, was 16th in this race. That's a pretty solid showing. And Leo Doshbach, who was a star in high school, and I'm like, why has everyone at Michigan, everyone at Washington runs like a 350 mile, yet he hasn't broken 347? What's wrong with him? He actually was 93rd in this race, so good to see him. Good to see him racing again. But all right, let's enough of this talk about this. Let's talk about the team that John's upset about because I got to share my inside info that I shared with the supporters club on Friday. I want to share with everybody here. John seemed very miffed for some reason that the Oregon men did not run this meet. They did not run pre-nationals. They just skipped out entirely on the weekend. And I'm not sure why that surprised him. I told him that I had a source that told me that the Oregon men would be opening up. All of, everybody would not be redshirting. They would be opening up. They'd be running. They would be running the Pac-12 meet. The way it was told to me, oh, that's they, what they, they would. Oregon's going to run the Pac-12 meet. This is breaking news. The team's going to run their conference championship. No, what you said on the Friday 15. Let's put this in full context because you didn't have. You might have had inside news, but it doesn't apply here exactly. You said Oregon's. Uh, they're going to pull the red shirts from their top guys at the Pac-12 meet. You didn't say they're not going to run pre-nationals tomorrow. They're not going to run any, like, I'm surprised Oregon didn't field a team at all at that meet, because to me, this is the University of Oregon. This is kind of the program when it comes to track and field and distance running in the United States. You know, historically, it's a big deal. Jerry Schumacher, one of the most famous distance coaches in the world, he's the head coach. For them not even to run this meet, it's not like they're a lock to make NCAAs. I think they have a good chance to make it, 
especially if they run all of their freshmen. But you know, this it's not a team where you think, oh, they can just blow everything off and they'll show up at regionals and get second. Especially the West region isn't as strong this year as in years past. So if you could, usually you could show up and get fifth or something, you get pushed in by a team with points. That might not be able to happen this year. So I'm just I'm like they're not even running a meet this weekend. The women's team ran pre-nets. You know, it's not like the the men's team, there's some talent on that roster. I'm just like, why are they giving some of these guys the opportunity to run? Now, from what I've heard, they were planning on running this meet. And I think there was some illness or something and they just, team kind of got decimated and they ended up pulling out. But, which, okay, I, if, I, I can get that if you just weren't going to be able to send a competitive team, all right. But, to me, just this is a, a team that should be out there competing. Like you have a cross country team. This is one of the most famous programs in the country. I want to see them in action. And I hope the red shirt gets pulled from people like Archie Noakes and Simeon Burnbaum and Connor Burns. And we get to see him rip it at Pac 12s because that conference is kind of down right now. You know, uh, Stanford, like we said, was only 20th in this meet. And I'm looking, the only Pac-12 team ahead of Stanford was Colorado in seventh. So I think you would say Colorado is maybe the tentative favorite, but then if Oregon runs all their guys, are they going to be ready? I don't know. Uh, It's interesting. I just like this. Oregon's got a lot of talent. They're a historic program. I want to see them running. Uh, So that's why I was a little miffed. But if they had this wake of it, of illness go through the team, I can understand why they didn't. Yep. When I told you on Friday that the red shirts would be pulled at Pac 12s, I didn't ask my source if they would be pulled at pre nats or not, so I wasn't sure. But they're probably busy counting their Benjamins. Again, my source also said that they thought they the stars were on thirty thousand a year in NIL money. Must be nice. By the way, if you have any NIL money you want to give to me fans, just send it my way. I can give you my Venmo. It is interesting because I'm like, okay, they're just training. Don't need to worry about these middle season meets. They'll probably win Pac 12s or get second, and then they'll get enough, you know, they'll get pushed into nationals. But now that the West Region's Stanford sucks, maybe they don't have any points. Could you have a huge blockage situation? So, a way that works in qualifying, like you get these large points from beating other teams that qualify, but if you fit in the top two in each region, go automatically. But if you're third, but the team behind you doesn't have points, you can only push one team in. So the fifth-place team can push the fourth-place team in, but they can't push the fourth- and third-place team in, which seems stupid to me. But anyways, we can worry about that later. Sorry, guys. I got a little bit distracted here. Checking out the Oregon schedule. Did you guys know Oregon has a sport called acrobatics and tumbling? It's a varsity sport. This is not gymnastics. It's a separate sport at the University of Oregon. Don't know. Don't care. Is that like a numbers thing? It's easier to get more women for that than gymnastics to boost your Title IX numbers. It shows how like the proportionality test for Title IX is a complete joke. They, it's a spring sport. Schools they compete against are Augustana. Augustana, excuse me, that's in South Dakota. Gannon, I've never heard of this school. Azusa Pacific. And they have a home and away with Baylor. Then Azusa Pacific again. Sorry, can someone... I fell asleep there for a second with Weldon listing off acrobatics and tumblings teams. Uh, 
let's I'm get back to running. For this. Yeah. Great, great for them. I don't care in the least. All right. Anything, any other lingering NCAA cross country thoughts? The NAU men won this thing pretty handily. It seems like it's pretty clear it's going to be a two horse race between them and OK State because they were well ahead of BYU in this race. So that's quite, kind of your cross country primer. Oh. It was pre Nats over the weekend. Those fields weren't quite as competitive. Arkansas men. Arkansas men ran well. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell what to make of it because there wasn't really anyone else there. But they looked good in winning, and the BYU women dominated the women's race. I don't understand why you're not ripping Oklahoma State men. They didn't race last weekend either. I mean, I'd like to see Oklahoma State race more often. And I guess the thing is, Dave Smith always does this. Like, they basically never run on this weekend, whereas Oregon has in the past, and Oregon's women did race. But also, I know Oklahoma State's going to be top two in their region. Like, I, I don't know. I, it will be nice to see the top programs competing more, and I think Dave Smith probably does want to compete a little bit more, but maybe not on the in the, the current system it is with uh, Wisconsin, everyone pouring so much into it. Can Dave Smith and... Jerry, reach out to Jakob. Jakob races a lot. He seems to be pretty good at running. I guess they would say he'd be better if he raced less. But I guess that's a topic for another day. I want to use something, John, that you said on the Friday 15 to segue into another topic. By far the best thing on the Friday 15 was this audio clip about a dream you had. But I woke up, was it this morning maybe? It was either this morning or yesterday. And I had a dream that Galen Rupp had the day after Chicago had run another marathon somewhere else and run like 206 and hit the standard. And everyone everyone was all set for the Olympic team. And I'm like, wow, good job, Galen, recovering from that and running a marathon. And I woke up, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. It seemed a little bit too good to be true. So yeah, still need one person to get the standard. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. That's the definition of a hardcore running fan. If you're dreaming about Galen Rupp or dreaming about the Olympic marathon trials, John's dreaming. He's doing it for America. You can see when it comes to track and field, John's got America's back. But I'm a little worried. Well, then does this mean, am I a little too obsessed? Do I need to go on a vacation? Like if I'm dreaming about Galen Rupp, maybe that's uh, not a great sign. Well, before we went live today, I asked John if his Sunday afternoons are going to be freed up, and it sounds like they may be. For the first time in 20-some-odd years, John may not be caring what happened or maybe hoping that something bad happens to the Patriots for three hours on a Sunday afternoon. So maybe this, John, go apple picking. You know, I don't know what – New England in the fall, it's great. I, I went up to a brewery in Vermont on Saturday, so I spent my whole Saturday that way, but I still watched football on Sunday. I watched the, the Patriots game in its entirety, but I really wasn't invested in the outcome, and we don't really need to go into much more detail. But but it, it came out this last week that Jared Ward, I think Sarah Hall, 80-something marathoners, they sent a letter. To USATF, 
petitioning that the Olympic marathon trials be moved from a start time at 12 noon in Orlando, in Florida, in February, when it's usually about 70 degrees, to 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. This letter, and then they were meeting with Max Siegel, I believe, last Thursday via Zoom. But I had not heard what the outcome of this meeting was. But John, I believe you've spoken to Jared since the meeting? Yes, I did. I spoke to him, I think it was on Friday, or maybe it was Thursday evening to talk about it. He said they were going to have a follow-up meeting yesterday on Monday, so I don't know what happened there. But he said that USATF, the national office people, which included Max Siegel on this call, the CEO, they seemed receptive to this idea of a time change. They understood the concerns, but... They were also saying, look, our hands might be tied here because as expected, you know, NBC is kind of the one that's pushing for this 12 p.m. start so that they can show the race to the most people and get the highest rating, which is understandable. I want track and field. I want track and field to get high ratings as well. I want people to see this sport, but it's not just that there's. You know, there's some local organizing committee concerns as well, which I, Jerry didn't go into specifics on, but I think there might have been some challenges there. But the other thing is that it's not just NBC that wants this thing to get high ratings. It's all of the sponsors and everyone else invested in you know putting their money into this thing. It's anything that can be marketed as part of the trials. So whether that's a sponsorship opportunity or anything like that, anyone who's kind of promoting the Olympic trials, they want the most eyeballs on this thing. They want the most bang for their buck and they're going to get it by having it at noon. It's just pretty simple. You have an Olympic marathon trials at 6 a.m. Eastern. That's 3 a.m. on the West Coast. How many people are going to be watching NBC at 3 a.m. on the West Coast? It's probably not even going to be on NBC if that's what they moved it. They move it to Peacock you're just not getting nearly as much exposure. And what has been suggested is moving the trials to six or seven in the morning, and then you tape delay the broadcast. I don't know how much tape delaying affects the numbers. Does it mean we're going to get dramatically lower rating? I don't know. But Jared kind of understood. He's like, yeah, I I do get where the national office is coming from. And NBC is covering the production costs of this thing. So they kind of have earned the right to have a say in it. So yeah, it, it's it's it, it's going to be challenging to move the broadcast, but it doesn't sorry, move the start times, but it's not impossible. The, the one other issue he raised, USATF says that they're going to have a heat contingency plan in place. So if they reach certain conditions, they will consider moving the race. But what those conditions are, when it will be announced, if the race moves or not, that stuff, they still have to work to figure that out. So there is a potential that the race might just be moved for weather concerns and not just broadcast. But yeah, there's there's still things to be ironed out for sure. So basically we haven't learned anything. Shocker, we have to have a heat plan in case there's 100 degrees. It's very simple. They need to keep the start time at 12 unless it's X degrees and X humidity, the wet bull point, whatever. Publish it by November 1st. Everybody knows what it is and these people can stop complaining about it. 
yeah, usually when Robert just says something, oh, it's very simple, I tend to disagree with him, but I, I kind of think that is the solution. Uh, I, I'm i okay with a warm Olympic marathon, Charles. It's going to be warm in Paris. This is the Olympic marathon. The Olympic marathon is usually pretty warm because it's held in the summer. So, yeah, I'm all right with that. You don't want to endanger anyone's safety, obviously, so that's why you have a contingency plan. But I think we said when this start time was announced, we we want to see the Olympic marathon trials getting exposure. It's the greatest marathon in the United States. It's one of the few times the general public might be interested because it's got the word Olympic in front of it. So I'm not that all that opposed to a 12 o'clock start time as long as we're not getting dangerously hot. But I guess dangerously hot, that's like, then we got to decide what exactly that is. I guess that's up to the health experts. Speaking of Olympic trials, the Marathon Grand Championships, Japan's Olympic trials, were held on Sunday. We now know the first four Olympic track and field athletes for 2024. To qualify for the Japanese trials was significantly harder than the American trials. Weldon has not met my week that was because I just published it as we started writing this, recording this podcast. To qualify, you either had to break 208 or have a two-race average under 210. Or break 224 for the women or have a two-race average under 228. Well, then, guess how many men would have in the U.S. would have qualified for their race? By the way, in Japan, there were 67 men and 30 women, I believe. What's the criteria again? Sub-208 or two-race average under 210 or sub-224 with a two-race average under 228. For the men, we're going to be at like four. Not bad. We would have five. Connor Mance, Clayton Young, Galen Rupp, Scott Fable, and Alcana Cabet. And for the women? Say the criteria again. Sub-224, two-race average under 228. 25. We would have 16 women. Now, I know what U.S. fans are saying, but more would qualify because they would know they'd have to rise their game. Well, that's probably true, but we've only had seven other U.S. men break 210 in any race, and we've only had five U.S. women break 228 in any other race, so we would not be getting to the Japanese levels. All right, the actual races, let's start with the men. They went off first. By the way, bad weather did not stop them from running the race. It was pouring down rain, which was good news for who? Yuki Kawaiichi. Remember that guy? 2018 Boston wins it in a blizzard. This guy races like 100 marathons a year. He just did his thing. Went out there, 1445, first 5K, 2945, that's 205 pace. Breaks free, tries to steal it. Gets caught, though, around 35K. Doesn't pack it up. Hangs in there. Battles it out. Ends up fourth. So he is the alternate for the Olympics. Getting rave reviews, though, and let's run. Message board, one message board poster has said, started a thread, Yuki Kawaichi narrowly misses top three after running bravest race I've ever seen. I mean, it was awesome. I admittedly was not paying attention on Saturday night. It was kind of just relaxing. But then I see on my Twitter feed, you guys are saying Yuki Kawaichi is trying to steal the Olympic trials and... 
I was looking at the weather. We need to, people are like, oh, I wish there was perfect conditions for every race. No, we need more marathons in the rain, people. This was epic. I look at the conditions I'm like, this is amazing. How sick is this that we're competing? It just makes it seem so much cooler when you have these huge stakes and the terrible conditions. Between that and Wisconsin, like, yeah, it's fun to watch races in the rain. Maybe not being out there as an athlete, but when you can sit back from the comfort of your home. So that was enjoyable. And Yuki also, I hadn't heard that all that much about him since he won Boston. I know he turned professional, but you know, I wasn't hearing any crazy results or anything like that. But turns out he did run a personal best 207.27 in 2021. And then earlier this year as well, he ran 207.35 in Osaka. Of course, he ran four more marathons, sorry, five more marathons in between that one and Tokyo. So this was his sixth marathon of 2023, according to Tillis Tapia. And yeah, he went for it. Like, that's what you got to do. I, I guess maybe I'm thinking, oh, he's so this big underdog because I don't view him as a star, but he's run 207. He has run at the World Championships for Japan before, so it's not like this is totally insane, but I feel like he, he saw his opportunity and he went for it and he held on a little bit when he got past. Like he was still trying to run down Suguru Osako. He only finished seven seconds behind him at the end. So just really cool what he tried to do. And I was reading Brett Lana's recap. He compared it to 2019 when Yuta Shitara tried something similar. Yuta Shitara went out really hard and ended up blowing up and it cost him a spot on the team. But I view these races differently because. Yuki was actually, to me, kind of ran a smart race and that he was trying to take advantage of the conditions and sort of steal this thing, whereas Shatara was the favorite going in and he just only knows one way to run, which is hard from the front. I think he shot himself in the foot by like going unnecessarily hard, whereas Yuki, I think like there was more strategy behind this, but it was really cool to see. It was a cool denouement at the end of it. Asako digging for third place and just some of the expressions on the faces of the athletes when they cross the, t- the team. I mean, this is why trials are so amazing. And I'm thinking, I'm like, what would it be like if we had a Kenyan Olympic trials? You know, how, how crazy would that be? Because this trials race is awesome. The U.S. Olympic trials marathon is awesome. Just the finality. Well, the finality for the top two. Number three is still in limbo at the moment. But I, I loved everything about this race. And in the end, Naoki Koyayama was the winner. He had run 207.40 to win Gold Coast this summer. Akira Akasaki, who had run like 13.27 or something, 5,000 this summer. He was the 12th to last seed, 209.01. Second, Saka third, Kawaiichi fourth. And the third place is interesting because it's provisionally qualified for the Olympics, but if someone comes in and runs sub-205.50, sub in the Japanese you know, winter spring marathon season, they steal the spot. So last year, sorry, four years ago, Osako was in the same position. He finished third at the trials, but had to defend his spot. And I think he actually went out and ran a national record. Yeah, he went to Tokyo in March of 2020 and ran 205.29. So he defended his spot. I expect them probably to do the same thing this year, go out and try to defend it. But it's pretty cool. This is a guy who put so much into the sport that he actually said he was retiring 
at the age of 30 after his Olympic marathon in 2021. Then he came back and said, no, you know, it's, I got to keep going. So cool to see him provisionally make the team again. But there was a thread on the message board saying, would Kawayuchi have done better if he just stayed in the pack? And I said, no, like to me, I don't know, 2018, 18 Boston, Kawayuchi and Linden won because they were the best at terrible weather. Now, I guess the question could be, it's still terrible weather. He could run in the pack. I mean, you don't need to go out in 205 pace to run 208 or 209, actually. Maybe you could run in the pack. He'd still feel better and outkick them at the end. So I guess you could argue that it's always best to run like an economical race. But I I, I think the strategy was right. I think if, if the pace is slower, he wanted to be fast. If the pace is slower, maybe these other guys, people who aren't feeling, who aren't good in bad weather, feel better and then outkick him. I don't know. I, it seems weird. Normally I would not advise someone to go like 62, 67 in a marathon. But in this case, I, I loved it. Yeah, and maybe if he's not out there leading, instead of the winning time being 208.57, it's something like 210 or 211, and then maybe his chances aren't as good. So I thought it was interesting. And Robert, I'm glad you caught this. You have this in the week that was, and I noticed it too during the feed, and I thought it was amazing. When you go to click on the live feed of this race, the English translation below, it says, men's race for the Paris Olympics. The top two people will receive job offers. (laughs) I was just like... That's such a great way of thinking about this race. Like the Olympic trials marathon in Orlando top three will receive job offers. It's like the apprentice meets marathoning. Yeah. I would love to have a Japanese speaker, like explain what the actual word was and what that means. Is that the way they view it? Like Olympic spot is you're, you're working for the country. Like what? I just thought it was so cool how, you know, that came about. You talked about Brett Lorner. I mean, Japan Running News is the best place to go for Japan Running News. But he's got a, a big recap. I kind of thought he was taking a shot at Kawayuchi. He said he only made it 35K before being passed. Well, he got, he made it 35K in the lead, and then he stuck with the lead group of like six or seven guys. And then he says he barely hung on. Well, he did hang on and beat two or three of those guys. Yeah, I didn't see the race, but the recap did seem weird to me because I'm like, wait, this guy went way out ahead. And what's Kauchi done? I'd almost like completely forgot about the guy. Has his best race in ages. Gets caught and then hangs with the pack. Because everything I know about competitive running is usually when you get caught in the marathon, it's all over. There's no hanging. There's no getting fourth. How many guys caught him, John? I think there was six people in the pack, right, Robert? I mean, I'm shocked that he finished fourth. Great run by Yuki. 2018 Boston, didn't the same thing happen, John? He's way out. Didn't he get caught and then win? Yeah, Jeffrey Jeffrey Karui was closing on him. Did Jeffrey Karui ever pass him? I'm trying to remember. I think he might have. I need to go back to my 2018 Boston Marathon recap, but... Because remember, Jeffrey Karui had that massive jacket on. It looked like a sail because the wind was blowing so hard. I think he never caught him, John. I think we thought he was going to catch uh, him. He, he looked so good. I thought he was going to roll him up. But, you know, let me... Wait a second. 
No, we're totally misremembering this thing. Jeffrey Karui had a 91-second lead. Good to meet a friend of Let's Run. At the top of Heartbreak Hill. So basically what happened is Yuki went out really hard early and did get an early lead, but then the pack caught him by about four miles. So there was actually a big pack, and Karui had this massive lead at Heartbreak Hill, but then just totally fell apart. And... Yuki ran him down and won. So we just we have a collective misremembering of that thing. Because the way I remember that is like, yeah, Yuki just ran away with it and no one else, like everyone fell off. It was a little different, actually. That was the men's race. But what was disturbing to me and upsetting to me is Mr. I should be in charge of all marathon broadcasts in this world is the women's race was going on at the same time. I've always said you should not have two sporting events going on at the same time. If you do, one should finish when the other one is halfway. Instead, in Marathon Craze Japan, the men started first. The women started 10 minutes later. They broadcast both of these. Now, to their credit, they didn't try to broadcast them on the, on the same channel. Totally different channels, totally different networks broadcasting it. I'd love to see the the ratings for these. Like, What percent were they getting? Were they getting similar ratings? If anybody knows, email us. Robert at let's run.com, Robert at let's run.com. But there was one person in the entire men's race or women's race who PR'd, and she won the women's race. Yuka Suzuki, 24 year old who was a 400 hurdler in high school, 61, 64 PB. It's pretty good, actually. Improved from 225.02 to 224.09. Then the top two seeds. Of all the entrants went 2-3, Mayo Ichiyama and Ai Hosada. But looking ahead, um, there was two women who've run 219 and 220 who didn't run this race. I guess they've been injured. Hitomi Niya and Mizuki Masuda. So they might be able to steal that third spot if they can get healthy before March. Which is interesting but, about how this trial system works. Because Robin and I talked about this on the Friday 15th. Well, I'm interested about your opinion. Do you like it that the top two spots are set in stone and then someone can actually come and steal the third spot and it creates more interest in the spring marathon season? Or do you like the U.S. system of top three and that's it? I love the U.S. system. But if you're going to have the race in the fall, I, I, I like this Japanese version actually maybe better. But you need to set the bar ridiculously high. It should be like you break the American record that, you know, the, you have to go under the American record and you get the time because it'd be kind of cool, right? If finally all of these, well, there'd be very few people who could do it, but like, let's say Rupp misses out and he's like, screw it. I now finally have to go get that American record, right? Like there would be this huge incentive to go run fast and the Americans don't have that. Some of these guys make a lucrative win living now running like pretty mediocre times. I mean, let's not fool ourselves, right? We have two guys qualify. We have two spots checked off for the Olympics on the men's side. We may get the third. So the bar needs to be raised again in the United States. Everyone talks about how, oh, the early 2000s were this dead period of American running. 2000 Olympic trials, yes, we sent one guy to the Olympics. But by 2004, we had some pretty good guys running at the, I'm going to defend my era, running at the marathon trials. Meb, Culpepper, Abdi. Meb, won a world marathon major, made multiple Olympic teams. Abdi's made more Olympic teams than anybody. Opti you ran can't tell me about marathon trials? What? Opti ran the marathon trials in 2004? Well, Culpepper did. 
and Meb. Culpepper won the trials. It is interesting. Meb was the bronze medalist in, or sorry, silver medalist in Athens, and he didn't even win the U.S. Olympic trials. That's kind of wild. Okay, John, let me just double check here. You're probably right. Abdi probably didn't do it. But a guy who beat Abdi did run the Olympic marathon trials in 2004. Yours truly, dropping out once again in a major race. Yeah, Abdi's marathon debut was in 2006. By the way, the super shoot debate interests you. have done some sleuthing. Five of the top six spots... Japanese Marathon Grand Championships. They were wearing the swoosh. New Balance took one of the spots. If you need to know which shoe's the best, you need to go to the let'srun.com shoe site today. Go to let'srun.com slash shoes today. All right, one other thing before we get to our interview with Stephen Lane. Some big doping news on... Monday, Titus Akiru, 202.57 personal best, the sixth fastest marathoner of all time. He was suspended for 10 years for doping. And what interested me about this case is it wasn't just that they banned him for so long and it was, you know, he tested positive for this hot new drug that we've been discussing, triamcinolone acetonide. That was the same one that Diana Kipyoke got suspended for after she won the Boston Marathon in 2021. But they're going after the doctor here as well. Because what happened, he made up these excuses. He said, oh, I took these trips to the doctors. That's where I got these injections. And initially, it seemed like the AIU was inclined to believe him because trimcinolone acetonide, it's only illegal if it's administered a specific way. So... Initially, he was in the clear, but then he tested positive for more stuff after a subsequent marathon in Abu Dhabi. And that's when they start digging in. They're like, oh, these excuses don't add up. And then they go back and they say his initial excuses don't add up. And then they get the head of, I think the head of the medical uh, department of the Nandy County government. He is able to dig in and actually get the truth. And there's this doctor he's been going to. Turns out the records were forged. They were making up some of these visits. And now... The outcome of this case is not only is Akiru banned, but the AIU has requested the Anti-Doping Agency of Kenya refer the doctor who was involved here in helping him cover it up to the criminal authorities in Kenya. And it's not as if we're ever going to solve the doping crisis. I think as long as there's competitive sports, people are going to be trying to dope. But this is how you start to get it under control, is you don't just go after the athletes, you go after the enablers, you go after the people... The, the doctors in Kenya, this is what a lot of the agents have been saying because they're saying, oh, it's not us, it's the doctors. Um, so this is progress to me because we also saw something similar. Diana Kipike, when she was banned for the same substance after winning Boston, she also tried the same excuses and it came out. Her documents have been forged as well. She gets banned for it. So hopefully this sends a message to athletes in Kenya and around the world that if you do try to cover up, not only are you going to get caught, but you're going to get handed extra years on your ban because of aggravated circumstances. So what would have been you know, a four-year ban or an eight-year ban is now a 10-year ban. So I just found this interesting. 
I think it was good to see that the Athletics Integrity Unit and the Antiopian Agency of Kenya and the local medical authorities are working together on this one to nail this doctor and to nail the athlete. It was encouraging to me to see the news of this story. But the doctor's named or not named? They don't name I don't know why they don't name him. Like, maybe it's because he hasn't been convicted or anything. But yeah, they went to great lengths not to name this doctor. Well, yeah. So for me, what happened? Nothing. The doc- Unless the doctor's like stripped of his license professionally or something. Well, they're going so, after the doctor. That's They are trying to... They're saying, hey, you need to bring him to the authorities and maybe he stands trial for something. The AIU doesn't well, have... The AIU could ban him, but... They can't like you know strip him of his license. They don't. Ha- they don't have power of a Kenyan. Like, yeah, that that's something for the Kenyan authorities. Whatever happened with Jeffrey Brown? I mean, it's sort of crazy. I'm sort of against lifetime bans, but maybe a, a doctor could say, "Oh, I'm, I'm not harming the person physically." What? But it'd be pretty, pretty draconian practice. To remove someone's medical license, but like that, talk about a strong deterrent from a doctor helping out with doping. It's like a you know lawyers can't do certain things because they could get stripped of their law license. So many things here. One, you're against lifetime bans. I thought it was an official policy of Let's Run.com. Look, lifetime bans are a good thing. Intentional doping, you should be out of the sport for life. No, period. I'm against like lifetime bans and life in general. Sort of like no. Obviously, people can go to prison for life, but just in general, like you commit some sin and you're like banned from society for life. No, I believe in redemption for people. No, you cheat intentionally in track and field. You should lose the the privilege of being a track and field athlete for life. That, 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 that part is very I'm fine clear. with that. I just mean in general, this guy can't practice as a doctor, which is a slightly different thing than being being an athlete. But if you're going to abuse what a doctor's doing, I maybe you could have a lifetime ban. So I'm open to the possibility. In terms of banning the doctors and stuff like that, it's interesting because Kenya has criminalized doping. So I'd assume that would apply to the doctors. In the U.S., you probably couldn't do it. Hell, most of the doctors make a living by prescribing shit off off prescription that their clients want. (laughs) So, I mean, half the drugs in America aren't approved for what they're being given out for. People just do it left and right make tons of money off of it. And we live in a world where we think a pill can solve all your problems. So it'd be harder to do in America, but yeah, if that was the deterrent, I think less like how, maybe how little does a doctor make in Kenya that they're willing to risk their medical career to give somebody stuff off the table. It's crazy, but I don't know, man. I'm sure Titus Akuro is still a lot better off now than if he hadn't doped. He ran 202, probably made a ton of money. We saw last week Divine Oduduru banned Texas Tech. Every time I'm on Twitter, I see some Texas Tech thing. They're at the football game celebrating their indoor title. Big thing. It was Big 12 last year, whatever. I don't think they're giving back their NCAA title. Was he doping when he won it for them? Sick to me how many people benefit from immoral, illegal behavior. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Robert, you're never going to... As long as the financial pressures exist in Kenya and the risk-reward ratio is basically always going to be in favor of trying to dope if you're an athlete, unless you're an ex- one of those exceptional talents who doesn't need it. But you know, if you're a make-it-or-break-it type or if you're getting older or something, there's going to be that incentive to dope. 
because financially it can be so rewarding. But I do think this case will hopefully act as a deterrent towards the enablers and towards athletes seeing what the consequences are. And it's good that the AIU likes publicizing this stuff. They put out press releases. They're proud of this sort of thing, and they should be because it shows what they're doing. You know, this is paying some of their hard work is paying off and they're not just allowing people to brazenly cheat and get away with way with it obviously there's still more work to be done but to me it's this was progress all right guys anything else we want to discuss before we get to our interview with steven lane i have one question have y'all seen this thread des linden throw a shade at 220 and slower women marathoners i think i clicked on it briefly how can she be throwing shade when she would never break 220? Well, I'm not th- sure throwing shade is the right word. We'll link to this thread. Started by an anonymous poster with the name, U.S. Women Marathoners are Not Up to Expectations. De- they quote Des that says, where Des says, this is from Outside Online, I'm glad I'm 40 because when the sport started, that that's a different sport. If I had to peak in my career with a super shoes, maybe I'd break 220, which doesn't put you in the conversation now. I don't mean that as a knock on anyone, but if you want to be competitive, you're going to have to level up and start believing that two fourteens are in your wheelhouse. So I'm glad I'm 40. But Robert, she's acknowledging what she said. She said, even with super shoes, maybe I break 220. Now there is a, Highly upvoted post in this thread saying Molly Seidel and her Olympic bronze medal say hello. They got 154 upvotes. People seem to be overreacting to this. The quote is, she's just saying women's marathoning is more competitive than it was when she started out, which I think is true, even with the times getting inflated by the super shoes. So what's so controversial about all of this? Exactly, John. I, I, I think it's, People are agreeing, saying different things, because I'd also seen a highly upvoted, even more upvoted post by Sage Kennedy, who was coached by Robert in college, the ultramarathon social media star, who said, you know, he ran with Daz and Hanson's Brooks for a while. But he says, I would agree there is nothing in her 5K, 10K and half marathon PRs to suggest that she actually was a sub 220 kind of runner in a flat course in normal weather conditions, even if she had super shoes back then. So he's saying, most likely not. Death's saying, I'm not even sure if I would do it. And Robert's saying, I don't think so either. Well, she's still an American legend and a Boston Marathon champ. You're never going to take that away from her. Yeah, I hadn't read the thread. She's not throwing shade at it. She's just saying, like, wow, I would not be competitive now. I would be close to the best in the world. And that's probably true. I mean, she almost won Boston before 2018. She was, what, second one time, John? Third? She was regularly competitive at the Bostons for the win. Now, do I think even back then she was one of the best marathoners in the world? Not really, but I think the game has changed significantly in the last 10 or 15 years in the sense of, I mean, back then sub-220 was still relatively rare, but the world record was 215. Now, as John says, I expect to see a 218 in every marathon at a minimum. But I think the difference is Africa was a – very sexist place 20 years ago. It's probably still pretty sexist now, but there's more women getting opportunities. There's a lot more money in the marathon too. So 
<laughs> people will suddenly let their women do stuff if they can make a lot of money. But so I think there's significantly more African talent competing professionally. And I think that the level of professionalism is a lot higher. There's a lot of training groups. They now, everyone knows how to train for the marathon in Kenya. You know, well, when we were in college, it was rare for a Kenyan to do well in Boston. It was, you know, high school, stuff like that. So now it's sort of expected. Everybody knows how to do it. So it, she's right. The game has changed. She's not throwing shade. She's just saying, thank God I'm retired because she thrived in being competitive, dreaming of the medals, dreaming of the wins. And she thinks now she might not be. But the, the post about Molly Seidel is perfect. I mean, Molly Seidel's PR is not amazing. Yeah, Robert, absolutely. There's always and, going to be a place for the Molly Seidels of the world, which is Boston, New York, Olympics, World Championships, either the hot weather or the challenging courses. Uh, Edna Kiblegott, one of the most successful marathoners of her generation. How many times did she break 220? Once. Yet she's won Boston twice. She won Boston two years ago when she was 41 years old. There is a certain type of athlete who Molly just ran 223, her PB. Des Linden's PB on a legal course was 225, yet she was always competitive in these things. And on her absolutely best day, maybe could win one, and she did win one, and she came close to winning a second. And that's because the courses and conditions in Boston and New York and the Olympics, they're equalizers. So, yeah, to go to win a major flat marathon like Berlin or Chicago – or London, you're going to have to be in 214 shape, probably, moving forward, even if the time isn't 214. But you're not going to have to be in 214 shape to win the other ones. I mean, Sharon Lacady, is she ever going to run 216? I Maybe, but she could be another type of the Kiplagat, Seidel, Linden, Ilk, who does really well on a tougher course. Anyway, that's probably a good way to end this discussion, because we're talking about the new generation of women's marathoners and Stephen Lane's book is about the first generation, the pioneers. Well, the pioneers were the first generation, and then there was really the second generation, which was these athletes competing at the 1984 Olympic marathon. Some of the biggest names in the history of women's distance running still 40 years later. Joan Bunoit Samuelson, Ingrid Christensen, Greta Weitz, and Rosa Moda of Portugal. So we will get into a discussion about that race, how Stephen came to write about it, all of that coming up right now. All right, we are now very pleased to be joined by Steve Lane. He is the author of the new book, Long Run to Glory, the story of the greatest marathon in Olympic history and the women who made it happen. He's also the longtime cross-country coach at Conquer Carlisle High School, which was, full disclosure, that was my rival high school when I was growing up in Massachusetts at Bedford High School. So we had our, our battles through the years. Uh, he's also the meet director of the Adrian Martinez Classic in Concord. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us uh, on the show today. Uh, a pleasure to be here. Thank you, John. And uh, I... I watched John win a lot of races, uh, <laughs> I will say, against my teams, but it was always fun. Uh, anyway, I'm very glad to be here, honored. Yeah, it, no, I, I just finished reading the book, uh, Long Run to Glory, really good. I really enjoyed it. It is the story of the first women's Olympic marathon 
1984 in Los Angeles, but not just that, sort of the build-up, how we got to that point, how it became a reality, um, and telling the story of the women who made the race. So primarily, Joan Benoit Samuelson and Greta Weitz, the gold and silver medalists, but also a little bit on Rosa Moda and Ingrid Christensen, who were two more legends of the sport, who went 3-4 in that race. So first of all, how'd you come up with the idea to write about this topic for the book? Uh, you know, okay, so the the image of Joan Benoit on, on the freeway in Los Angeles, all alone uh, in the marathon, has been in my in my head since I saw it live uh, live on television. I wasn't there live on live on television uh, when I was thirteen, and it, it, that was one of the first introductions for me to elite level running. Uh, and and so uh, it's something I always wanted to write about. Uh, and, you know, as you discovered reading, um, what I discovered writing and researching is, is there's so much uh, to the story uh, beneath that, you know, just the race itself. And, and I wanted to try to capture that and, and, and explain how we got there, talk about uh, the women who raced it and, um, and just try to bring that event to life. It's such an unbelievable race in so many ways. Uh, and, and so I want to try to bring that to life for people and, and maybe remind people of what a great race it was or introduce newer fans to the sport, uh, to, to one of the best races, I think, in history. Well, you make that case, and the, I think that uh, the argument for it being that way is you look at the top four finishes. We've seen Olympic marathons stacked with talent. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the Olympic marathon. Everyone wants to run it. But often someone ends up having a bad day or dropping mm -hmm. out or the weather gets to something. And this one... The, the stars all came through and I'm sure some of them, you know, Ingrid Christensen probably wishes she had run a little bit better, but mm -hmm. they went one, two, three, four. It was Benoit winning, Weitz, Silva, Moda, and then Christensen. That mm. never happens. You never see all the big stars going one, two, three, four in that race. So is that your reasoning for this being the best ever or what is there anything else that went into you making this claim? Yeah, I mean, that, that's part of it is that they, they all ran in, incredibly well. Right. They all showed up on the day. Um, and, and the other thing you have to imagine is, is, you know, for for an equivalent men's race or even an equivalent women's race today, take every great runner in the 5000 and 10,000 meters and throw them all in the marathon. Um, and for that matter, steeplechasers, too, because women didn't really have other options. Right. Uh, the, the 1500 and the 3000 were there. Um, but but any woman who was more of a distance oriented runner was going to be in the marathon. So you, so you had a collection of talent that uh, on the men's side has always been thinned out because there were more options. And, and on the women's side has always been thinned out. Uh, and, uh, and so, so just from a pure talent level, um, this race collected people that, that maybe they wouldn't have, uh, Ingrid Christensen, she, she was the world record holder in the five at the time. She first woman under 15, she probably would have run the 5,000 if that had been an option. Greta Weiss always said she thought the 10,000 was her best race. Um, she probably, probably would have tried to do both maybe. So you wouldn't have gotten them all in the same race, uh, given, given the, the options today. So that's, you know, that's one reason. Uh, and you know, the other reason is I, I just can't think of another marathon at the Olympics with the same stakes, the same historical stakes. You know, they're, they're, 
there can only be one first gold medalist in history, right? And and this was it for women. Uh, so so there's that. Um, and and at the time, I think there was more pressure on the women. Not you know, okay, the Olympics, right? First gold medal. Those are high stakes. But there was a sense among all of the women at the time that that if they didn't show out, if it wasn't a great race, um, it would add fuel to the the argument that they didn't belong. You know, so if there were a lot of women who dropped out or, or if it, it just didn't come off well, um, that would lend credence to the argument that women shouldn't be running a marathon. And obviously that seems silly to us now, but but that was part of the real real consideration you know uh, when the race was approved in 1981 to to be added to the olympics the ioc required uh their medical team to review the evidence to to ensure uh to certify that women were okay to run a full marathon so um so that attitude that that if women didn't if the women in 1984 didn't succeed didn't put on a great show uh it might have set the women's running movement backward, but so it was a real feeling. So, so there's tremendous pressure, tremendous historical stakes, and tremendous talent, and and they put on a great show. So, uh, in all kinds of ways, just a wonderful, wonderful race. Yeah, no, a really cool race to revisit. Mm-hmm. Certainly a rich topic for a book. Mm-hmm. How did you go about researching? Ah. Uh... <laughs> I wish I could say I had some grand strategy. This is this is what I need to do to pursue it. Um, I I started by reading what was there, and and to be honest, I was kind of surprised that that more hadn't been written about about 1984. Um, and then I started digging into the history of women's marathoning, and then I started working backwards, just looking at the history of women's track and field to understand their place in the in the whole, uh, uh, the whole Olympic movement. Um, and once I felt I had a decent base of, of knowledge, uh, I started interviewing people. I started calling, uh, anyone and everyone I could, uh, to, to talk to, uh, people who had been involved either in women's running or in marathoning or in the Olympic movement. And, and, uh, you know, every, every time you interview somebody, your last question is, who else should I talk to? Uh, and, and so you just try to, you try to get as many perspectives on, on the events and people of the time as you can, uh, and, and hope that through that you can paint as complete a picture as possible. Yeah. What I really enjoyed from this book was getting to know these athletes just kind of his people and also their perspectives uh mm. which i thought was particularly well done when it came to the segments on joan benoit and greta Weitz and not just their results and how they were improving in their career but you know what they were thinking about mm. going out when they're on their runs or when joan benoit went through her knee surgery just 17 days before the olympic trials in 1984 you know why she was waiting so long to do it and whether she was worried and she said she told her family not to come to the trials a week out and then she's like Mm -hmm. oh actually it might be okay i I thought this stuff was all really good so joan benoit as you noted in your acknowledgments she's told this story many times before (laughs) did you have to do some convincing and like were you able to sit down for her were you talking to her Mm -hmm. on the phone how the came come about <laughs> so I I actually interviewed uh, Joan. It was during COVID era, so it was it was over the phone, 
and and yeah, I, she's incredibly gracious uh, uh, about about talking through the history. I think she understands her her place in the sport and and her and her roles and responsibilities as a historical figure. Um, so she was willing to give me time uh, to talk with her, uh, but but she's also uh, just sort of by disposition, sort of reluctant to to get too much into her her thought process or, or sort of psychoanalyze herself for lack of a better word. Uh, so um, a lot of what uh, what I write about Joan is is you know from talking to Joan, from reading, I, I read a ton of interviews that she gave, you know, at the time and afterward. Um, uh, you know, I, I read her and reread and reread her memoir. Uh, and I talked to a number of people who, you know, who were there with her, who were friends and who interacted with her, you know, to try to create a full picture uh, of, of her as an athlete. And, um, you know, I one thing I, I tried to borrow from the practice of, you know, I read a lot of profiles um, of famous people and, and, and otherwise you know, from a lot of sources and kind of tried to look at how how you construct a full profile of somebody relying on as many sources as possible. Um, and so I tried to put a lot of that into practice. And, and, you know, one of my goals with, with all of them was to make sure they come across as real people and they're, you know, they're incredible athletes and they're so tough and, and so talented, but in many ways, they also harbor the same kinds of, you know, doubts and worries and they feel the same pressures that, that any athlete feels. And, and uh, maybe, you know, it's because I've coached high school or I coached high school for so long that, that maybe I wanted to, you know, thinking about my athletes, I wanted to give them that understanding that even the elites, they feel jitters, they feel pressure. They're all keyed up for, for days or a week before the race. Um, I think that's important to understand. Uh, and so, uh, so I wanted to make sure that got across with all of them. Yeah, I think it did because I enjoyed reading about how they, both her and Greta Weitz were sort of couldn't sleep much the night before the <laughs> Olympic marathon. And Joan came down for the opening ceremony in LA. Mm -hmm. And then she's just like, I, I can't be here. I got to go relax. And she goes to Eugene for a week. Mm -hmm. But even then, she's restless. And it, mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, you kind of forget that sort of stuff. You just think the stuff they do out there on the roads is so incredible. Mm -hmm. And Obviously, if you read the book, you'll see the attitude and like their approach to training. It's pretty different from just your typical <laughs> high school runner. Like, these are really yeah. serious, serious athletes. Mm -hmm. But uh, that sort of stuff with the butterflies in the stomach and the the nerves before this race—that's pretty mm -hmm. relatable to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I think, and 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 you know, I, I think I remember thinking this way when I was a competitive athlete. You know, I, I would wonder, like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so keyed up? Like, why why can't I eat, or why can't I, you know, get in the right headspace where I can really knock a race out of the park? And I, I think the, you know, the answer is that nothing's wrong with you, right? That's that's how we're going to feel when we care deeply about something and really want to succeed. And it's it's not about eliminating those feelings as much as as understanding them and and sitting with them and learning how to manage them and i think uh i think in in their ways uh you know greta and joni and 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 rosa and, and ingrid uh all had to figure out how to do that now it was 
long process to get this race on the Olympic schedule and, you know, all this bureaucracy and red tape to clear, like, there was one part you were laying out the number of steps that actually had to be taken <laughs> to get this thing on the program. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. It's like, hard. so it's hard to imagine it ever got through. But, you know, there are a lot of people who are working hard to make this a reality. Do you, is there one person who you think was the most important in making the women's Olympic marathon part of the schedule? Wow. Uh, wow. That's a great question. Um, and I, you know, it's hard to say, I think, um, I think Catherine Switzer, uh, did a ton to, to create a narrative around women's marathoning that, it was a big deal and it had a lot of money behind it and momentum behind it. And, and, um, and selling that narrative, I think was vitally important. I think, uh, you know, Jackie Hansen, uh, did some similar work as well, um, in getting Nike support. Now Nike wasn't, you know, Nike like it is now, but Nike was a big enough deal that, that getting Nike to support the idea of a women's marathon and, 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 um, and to support the efforts to get it in the Olympics, I think was it, those two women, I think demonstrated to the IOC that, that there was serious money and, and, and serious intent behind this. It wasn't just a couple of women who wanted to run a marathon. It was, um, it, the the corporate backing i think spoke a language that the ioc understood very well which was money to be honest uh and so i think that that helped i would say those two on the sort of on the on the political uh side in terms of making the movement um uh pushing the movement forward through all the different bureaucracies uh mattered um, but you know, I, in the end, I, if I'm being honest, I would say it's, it's Greta Weitz, uh, because the, the times that she ran in 78, 79 and 1980, uh, at the New York City Marathon, it, it utterly changed, uh, the way people looked at women's marathoning. And, you know, not only, you know, did she, she, did she drop the world record down to, you know, 225, uh, she, um, she ran in such a way that that it just it it made it impossible for for you know anybody who was looking objectively to say that you know this is something different from what the men are doing right she was she was so good and so tough and and she came off as as um, just so cool and imperturbable when when she raced you know it, it was clear that that um, that that type of ability and that um, that type of performance belonged in the greatest athletic showcase that we have, the Olympics. Uh, and, and so she, I think, um, probably did more to change people's understandings of what women's marathoning is than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, really interesting stuff to see her arrival on the scene and then how Fred LeBeau, the race director in New York, kind of took to her as like, I can make this a star and help it help promote the race, but also, you know, telling Greta, who was not like, you know, she wasn't clamoring for attention, but she was so good she almost demanded attention, right? Exactly. Yeah. She, you know, she she was a magnet for for the spotlight in, in so many ways because she was so good. 
And and yet, yes, as you say, she wasn't clamoring for the spotlight. She was incredibly introverted and shy. And, and you know, I always think about this. Yes, she is, she is shy. She is introverted. And she's trying to do interviews in her second language. Uh, you know, she's from Norway. She's her native language is, is Norwegian. So um, so all of that, I think, made her role as kind of the public face of, of women's marathoning very difficult for her. But uh, but she did it. She understood this was this was the role she had to play. Uh, and and I think also uh, for that reason, New Yorkers kind of took to her. They could they could see that that she wasn't loving the spotlight and she'd rather just be able to train and 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 be by herself. And and so I <laughs> if I can give a city a personality, I'd say New Yorkers sometimes get sort of protective of people they view as their own. And they came to see Greta as one of their own. And and so they they, you know, New York and New York sports fans kind of had Greta's back in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. One of the people you just mentioned was Catherine Switzer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned reading this book was I always just assumed Jock Semple is this dinosaur and he's sexist <laughs> and he was standing in the way of women's mm-hmm. sports. And you kind of give some more details about this that, all right, yeah, there is that famous photo. I, the quote I thought was funny is Catherine Switcher half joked, but I don't know if she was, I don't know how serious she was. She said Jock Semple actually did more f- than anyone for women's <laughs> marathoning because of that photo, because it got so much attention. So can you kind of give us the backstory on his take on Switzer entering the race and you know, his view on weirdies and the Boston yeah. Marathon, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So without defending Jock Semple trying to tackle Catherine Switzer, I think uh, the place you have to start with Jock is that, you know, he, I think like many of us, um, when he found running and when he found sort of organized uh, uh, track and field slash road racing, uh, he found his home. He's like this. He, he he sort of felt that this is where he belonged, and and um, so he was a decent marathoner growing up. I think he finished as high as maybe seventh in the Boston Marathon. Um, but then um, all he wanted to do was was work uh, on the marathon, was work for the marathon, and and so um, so he got a job in Boston, and and you know, like many track officials, uh, you know, he's working meets every weekend, every weekend he was out there um, and eventually rises to the the position of, of co-director for the Boston Marathon. Um, but he felt very protective of of the marathon and very protective of, of his people, which were the serious runners, which, which were, you know, the, the folks who trained hard and, 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 and ran, um, you know, with sort of the goal of, of, of seeing how far they could push themselves. And, and, uh, and anybody who was outside of those bounds of what he saw as, as real runners, he, yeah, he called them the weirdies. And, and, uh, and he had a long history of, of uh, <laughs> temper tantrums directed at weirdies. Um, at, at one point, um, he almost got arrested for assault, I think in 1964 or 65, uh, because he, he attacked a, a, a runner. Um, he, <laughs> one year a poodle wandered onto the course and, and he tried to kick the poodle, uh, and missed and tripped and fell and landed in a heap. Um, another year he, you know, he shoved a guy and threatened to punch another guy in the mouth. And, and so th- this is Jock. He's, he's hot tempered. 
but loves the marathon and is so protective of it. And when he saw Catherine Switzer running the race with a number, he thought two things. One, she's breaking the rules. It was a men's only race. Um, she couldn't run with an official number. And two, she's trying to make a, a spectacle out of his race. And, and the blood started boiling and, he, you know, he charges off the bus and, and tries to take that number back and, and attack her. And as the pictures show, he misses. Uh, he gets um, cross-checked by, by Catherine Switzer's then boyfriend um, and lands in a heap. Uh, and those pictures, you know, they, they tell a story and an important story about how women were sort of denied access to, uh, to athletics in this way. Um, but it, the story was in some ways unfair to, to jock, um, because, you know, in terms of his temper, I think, yeah, he was equal opportunity. He, he would have attacked a guy who, who he thought was, was violating the rules and he had attacked many, (laughs) many guys in his career. Um, so, so that's Jock, right? And, and he, he consistently throughout his career said, you know, women running aren't the problem, right? They're not the ones that, that are trying to make a mockery of my race. Um, and he supported women's athletics. He was good friends with Bobby Gibb. Um, and when women, were finally allowed to run when the AAU finally changed the rules to allow women to run marathons. Uh, he welcomed them in um, and was happy uh, happy to have them as part of the part of the tribe. Um, yeah, yeah. I, that that was something I thought was a cool detail because mm-hmm. again, yeah, we're not trying to say like, oh, he was totally in the right mm-hmm. to do what he did to Catherine. Obviously, mm-hmm. that was wrong, but it did gain attention and mm-hmm. it it's it's just good to kind of get the full story on that and to understand Mm -hmm. him and Catherine Switzer, they didn't end up being sworn enemies. They kind of ended up, you know, there was a tense, how would you say their relationship was, you know, sort of towards the end? Well, you know, okay. So 1972 is the first year that women are allowed to run officially uh, in, in Boston. And, and after the 1972 marathon, Switzer writes a letter to Jock and, and Will Cloney, who is the president of the BAA, um, not exactly apologizing, not saying, you know, that she felt she was in the wrong in 1967 when she ran, but, but saying that she understood their reaction better now and, and understood where they were coming from. And, and, and you know, and, and I think that letter laid the ground for this this idea that that all of them kind of viewed Boston as sacred, right? It's it's this incredible race and 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 the people running at Boston and the people working to uh to to make Boston happen all have the same goal of celebrating sort of the beauty that is the marathon. Uh and and so I think you know through that letter Catherine and Jock came to an understanding that that they they both love and cherish this sport and, and, and want to see it uh, be, be fully great, which, which in the end had to mean fully inclusive, which, in, which included women. So they did become, you know, I don't know if they would ever be friends, but they did become uh, close in many ways, you know, sharing, you know, sharing that common bond that I think, you know, runners and, and people in the sport have, uh, a, a sense of closeness, even if you only see each other <laughs> once a year at a race. So, 
So I thought I and I didn't know that either. And and I thought that was kind of a a wonderful thing to understand and and be able to bring to people's attention the the the, the full story of their relationship. I agree. That was one of the highlights uh, of the book for me. Uh, one other thing I want to know. Was there anything else you learned that you were surprised to find out? I'm sure there were plenty, but like sort of anything that sticks out to you. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, the, in terms of the, um, uh, you know, it was kind of shifting gears and, and, and jumping to the marathon itself, uh, the 1984 Olympic marathon, um, you know, I remember watching it and, and like you, I have this, you know, narrative in my head that, you know, Joni Benoit took off and, and, you know, people were, were you know, thought she was going to die, that she was being foolhardy. Um, one of the cool things about being able to watch the, the raw footage and, and I, I was able to, thanks to the LA 84 foundation, um, I was able to sort of borrow a copy, the actual raw footage. And so I watched that race like 20 times, I think. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that I was able to, to understand better was the pacing of that race and, and, um, and how slowly they were going. And, and when Joni Benoit makes her break, um, you know, she's running 230 pace, she's not running fast. Uh, and so it's not necessarily this, this daring kind of go for broke kind of move. It's just, she, she, you know, basically just ups her tempo the slightest bit. She's not trying to break open the field, right? You know, 230, all the elite women should be able to handle that. And in the end, like all, you know, the top nine in the race were, were under 230. Um, so it was more there. I think the, the dynamic I came to understand, which I hadn't realized, was that um, Joni sort of by constitutional or, you know, whatever her makeup is, was so much happier running alone. And so she just kind of, you know, separated herself slightly from the field. And, uh, and so Joni was comfortable doing that. Um, Greta Weitz was comfortable with her plan, which was just to wait. And she was confident she could run Joni down. Um, and what I didn't realize, but watching the race, you can really see is that everybody else in the pack is kind of conflicted and they're watching, they're watching Benoit go. Um, but more than that, they're looking over at Greta. They're like, they keep glancing over at Greta. And, and, and what that told me is that Greta was dictating the dynamics of the pack, you know, not intentionally, but everybody was queuing off of, of Vites. Um, and so, and so to me, the, the, the dynamic of that race is that there are two people in that race who are fully comfortable with their, their plan. One is Benoit, who's running how she runs, and the other is Vites. And everybody else is kind of uncertain of what they should be doing. And, and I could, you know, you can kind of see that in how the race plays out. Yeah, it was really fascinating because Ingrid Christensen, there's some great quotes in there from mm -hmm. her, which one of them is like, she's looking over at Greta multiple times in the race and kind of saying like, hey, should we go get her? And Greta just doesn't really want to be part of that conversation. She's focused on her own thing and doesn't want to get into it. But then the other one is like, I think afterwards she blamed the weather. She's like, I thought that Benoit was just going to wilt in the heat and it was supposed to be hot and she was supposed to slow down and it didn't happen. And 
You know, I, I was misled by all these <laughs> forecasters who said it was going to be too much for everyone to handle. So mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty crazy. Yeah, it was really funny. And, and you know, I'm reminded, if, you know, if we can if if we can jump from here to, to today in the upcoming Women's Olympic trials, there's been so much talk about the potential for heat in Orlando if we started at noon or whatever. Um, and and there was similar talk leading up to L.A., like, you know, everybody, coaches, trainers, athletes, everybody's saying, okay, it's going to be hot. It's going to be smoggy. We have to prepare for that. Um, and, and one thing that Ingrid told me was that um, she hated thinking that way. She's like, I, I am happiest if I can wake up the morning of the race and look around and say, okay, these are the conditions. Um, here's how I will approach it. Uh, and she said, you know, at most races, that's what she did. But but her her coaches and the Norwegian national team coaches leading up to L.A. for like months before L.A. had been trying to drill into them. You know, the heat, the heat, the heat is going to be the issue. And and when she looks back, she wishes she had just kind of tuned all that out and said, all right, we'll wake up on race day. We'll see what it's like and we'll make a plan. Um, and I, you know, to be honest, yeah, I think that's kind of what what Orlando might be like. That that maybe athletes would be better served not worrying one way or the other, and just you know, when we get there, if it's hot, we race this way. If it's not hot, we race a different way. Yeah, yeah. I think that probably is going to be advantage that sort of outlook yeah. um, rather than freaking out and <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, all uh, right. Well, Steve, really enjoyed talking to you. Mm. Again, congratulations. It's a terrific book. I really enjoyed it. Highest recommendation. It is long run to glory. Tell people where can they buy it? Uh, honestly, anywhere you want to buy books. Um, all the you know all the big sites like Amazon have it. Uh, indie books have it. Many, uh, many local bookstores have it. Um, if not, ask them. They can order it. Uh, and, you know, if you're a library person, uh, most libraries have it now, too. So, um, so enjoy it however you uh, you enjoy books so that's great i am a library person right. so uh i i didn't i got this one yeah this is like a review company yeah. so I got it <laughs> free but i i'm a big proponent of uh public libraries so, so all right uh well steve yeah thanks again so much for uh coming on and hope uh, the book sells a lot of copies all right i appreciate it i it's a pleasure to uh to do this with you thanks you want a better running shoe you got to check out the Let's Run.com Better Running Shoe site, where we combine data science and running shoe reviews from the most dedicated runners on the planet. That's you. Let's Run Visitor Schly is 14. He actually checked out the number one rated shoe on here. The ASICS Super Blast. ASICS is paying us nothing for this. But Schly's 14, trusted reviews, bought the shoe, and here's what he says. This is probably the best overall daily trainer I've ever run in. I typically don't run in ASICS, but giving the outstanding reviews on LRC Better Shoes, I decided to give them a try. They are worth every penny and effortlessly take 15 seconds off each mile. He continues on. The last shoe I felt this strongly about and coincidentally selected because of overwhelmingly positive reviews on the old LRC shoe review site was the Adidas Boston 8. While a completely different type of shoe, it brings back the same joy and effortless propulsion I fondly recall from that old Boston. Good job, Asics. Good job, LRC Better Shoes. So find a better shoe. The number one shoe may not be for you, but you can find the most durable shoe, the most comfortable shoe. You can see how your shoe compares to other shoes. Let's run.com slash shoes or betterrunningshoes.com.